You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is an extension of the Belgica series. This is an interview with Julian Sancton, who wrote the book Madhouse at the End of the Earth. Julian has been a journalist for 20 years, writing for publications such as Vanity Fair, Wired, The New Yorker, and many others. He is currently a writer for The Hollywood Reporter. Madhouse at the End of the Earth was Julian's first book, and it is wonderful. Without this book, I would not have been able to do the Belgica series. And the conversation that follows is great. We talked in depth about the expedition, but also the challenges and surprises he encountered as he became the first person to ever write the complete story of the Belgica expedition. If you are interested in learning more about Julian Sancton and Madhouse at the End of the Earth, check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, or look at the show notes of the podcast where I've included appropriate links. So that is it. Let's get going with an interview with author Julian Sancton. Hello, welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we have author Julian Sancton, who wrote the definitive book on the Belgica expedition. It is called Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night. Julian, thank you for being on the show. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I have to say this is uh, this is one of those things I don't do a lot. We don't do a lot of interviews, but this was so perfect when uh, we connected on Twitter, on X, whatever you want to call it. And you offered to come onto the show. We were in the middle of the Belgica expedition. And um, I figured this would just be a great way to end the entire series where we can talk to the man who probably knows more about this expedition than anyone in the world. And I just want to say, is that weird to think about that? You know, when I say you probably know more about this expedition than anyone in the world, is that kind of an odd feeling? It is a little odd. Uh, and I don't think I know much about anything else. It's especially odd given that I didn't have any particular knowledge or, you know, a, no more than anybody else about the polar uh, regions or about polar exploration before I started on this uh, journey about, at this point, about eight years ago. I'd heard of Shackleton, I'd heard of Scott, I'd heard of Amundsen, but I uh, had no, you know, no more than a, a sort of a pub quiz knowledge of uh, of polar exploration. So it is surprising to think that now, uh, I do, after years of research and writing this book, I can be comfortable when I hear somebody like you say that I know more about this topic than anybody. I'm sure that there's a few people who uh, have not published a book about the Belgica, but nonetheless know a lot about it, um, including people that I spoke with for the book or the descendants of the 
uh, of the explorers who took part in the expedition. And there are a few, there are a few experts in this, but um, certainly I feel privileged to have such a deep understanding of this of this topic. I have a question then that sort of relates to this. And I know you've been a journalist for nearly 20 years and you have not written any books before this. Why this story? Why did you pick this as your first book? I had been searching for a topic for a book from the moment I got to New York and started working in magazines. And I, I started working for Vanity Fair. My grandfather was a writer, a novelist and a journalist. My father is a writer, both of nonfiction and fiction. And I felt not just familial pressure to be a, an author, but some sort of wellspring deep inside to find something to write about. It's, it's just, I loved writing and I felt this sort of urge and I'd been searching for a topic for a long time. And every time something came up, uh, there was a reason not to do it. Either the, the at the beginning, the reason was that I had not, I, I didn't consider myself a good enough writer to do justice to the topic when I started out to whatever topic that was. Later on, I got very excited by certain topics and found that those, the source material wasn't there. Uh, or that somebody had already written something, or that uh, th th there was plenty of reasons not to do a book. Finally, about 2015, I remember reading an article in the New Yorker magazine about uh, plans for extended missions to space and uh, long-duration uh, missions to, to, to Mars in particular, and how people are preparing for that. And it began in classic New Yorker fashion by backing into the story, by writing about a, a harrowing expedition to the Antarctic in 1890, 1897 to 1899, as your listeners now know, which has served as, as a cautionary tale for these kinds of missions that people are planning now, because there is no closer analog to deep space missions of the future of the kind that we're contemplating now than the polar expeditions of the heroic age. Back then, the poles were the the last frontier of human exploration. And these hostile alien environments were, uh, I, I guess, comparable to, in, in many ways, to how, um, to, to what Mars would be now. And so, that story was just so fascinating to me, just in those few paragraphs and that in that short summary that I read in the magazine about people going insane about the participation of two people who uh, would reach heights of renown in polar exploration, namely Frederick Cook and Roald Amundsen, and the the fact that these were the first men to winter in the Antarctic. I just found this to be almost a um, it felt almost like a, a a horror story or a story from Edgar Allan Poe or like the the particularly the one of my favorite books which is the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym which I mentioned in the book it felt like a real life corollary to these polar horror stories that fascinated readers in the 19th century and and uh so I decided to see I, I was just fascinated fascinated as a reader I didn't really have any idea to, to write the book myself but then I found that no book had been written about it certainly none uh, aside from those uh, travelogues and memoirs of the people who had uh, participated in the expedition. So we're talking about 120 years. So I decided to see if if there was any possibility of, of my writing one, if the source material was there. And the more I looked, the more I found. And uh, I found that not only was it a great story, but it, it was one of the most thoroughly documented polar expeditions of the heroic age. And 
once I'd gotten in touch with the descendants of Adrien de Jarlache, who was the commander of the expedition and found that they were willing to share many of these primary records with me, including the log of the Belgica and give me access to the archives of the expedition, then I found that I finally found my topic. And I was fascinated in it, not just as a great story of adventure, but as a great human story. And that's what that's what drew me, I think, particularly to this is the the fascinating story of Frederick Cook, who was just such an outlandish character, one of a kind of a showman, but but not just a scoundrel, also a man of deep and of, of, of deep compassion and deep ambition. And uh, it, it felt novelistic to me. And so that uh, attracted me even further. You brought up about five questions I have for <laughs> you with topics. So I'll just kind of start with some of them. The first thing is, what were the biggest challenges you faced when you started doing the research? The biggest challenge I faced in researching this book is the variety of languages that were spoken aboard the Belgica. And I think that this is one of the challenges that made it such that no book had been written before because it was primarily a francophone expedition because it was led by Adrien de Jarlache, who was a French-speaking Belgian. But there were many Flemish-speaking Belgians aboard. There was a contingent of Eastern European scientists. The crew was largely Norwegian. And the doctor was Frederick Cook, who was uh, an American, who spoke a smattering of German because of his German parents. And uh, not only did this create a Tower of Babel atmosphere on board, which in uh, several instances endangered the men, but I also think it, it also led to a fragmented historical record that I think daunted a lot of writers. And that's the the best explanation I can come up with for why there wasn't a book written about the Belgica expedition before. I mean, we have plenty of books about Shackleton, plenty of books about uh, Amundsen. And uh, even about Charcot, who was a French um, polar explorer, they they left coherent, consistent, single language records. And to write this book, and certainly to research it, I had to employ the services of several translators. And um, but even before I got to that, I mean, I couldn't have them translate everything. That would have been prohibitively costly. So this is where, as as um, intimidated as I am and as as worried as I am about the impacts that artificial intelligence can have on my profession, I was extremely fortunate to make use of its uh, length of its translating capabilities when I started this out. You know, I, I went on uh, Duolingo and, and taught myself just a smattering of Norwegian, just enough to know where I was in a text and what certain conjunctions were. And then I would type in handwritten records into Google Translate and find that at least get a sense of what people were talking about. And obviously Google Translate, as, as impressive it is, as it is, does not capture the literary quality of many of these documents. So what, but once I figured out what they, what was uh, being discussed, then I would send certain passages to translators. And I ended up using much, most of my research budget, aside from my trip to Antarctica, was used in employing translators. Do you speak French? I am a native French speaker. It's my, it's my native, it's my mother tongue. So that must have been uh, extremely helpful. That was, that was helpful. But I, uh, I unfortunately don't speak Norwegian or Polish or uh, Flemish or Dutch. Would you have attempted this if you didn't speak French? That's a very good question. And I think I would not have. There's, yeah, I, I, not only do I speak French, but I also have 
of Belgian roots. My uh, grandmother, great grandmother, great grandfather was Belgian. And so that I think gave me a, a sense of connection with this expedition. And um, I found there, there were several signs that made me want to jump into this topic. One of them was that. And the other one was that when I looked up the biography of Frederick Cook, I learned that he spent the last few years of his life right around the corner from me here in Larchmont, New York. So that also felt like a sign that I, I needed to, to write this. That's great. I do want to uh, mention to people, when I first read about the Belgica, I was like, this is a great story and I would love to hear more. And when I started this show, which was almost seven years ago, there really was nothing. So when you say that, I mean, I can literally attest to it because I went, I can't do this story because I don't know the stuff that's there and, and your book provided that. So that was incredible. Now, we've talked a lot about the preparation of, of yourself as the writer, but I also want to then get into the preparation and the actual genesis of the Belgica expedition. I mean, it's crazy that it actually ever happened. And I wonder if you could just talk about that. Yeah. In the mid-1890s, the geographical societies of the world got together and concluded that the exploration of the Earth's southernmost regions was of the utmost priority. Um, understanding the, the 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 planet and and uh, it was uh, you know filling in the last empty spot on the map, and it was assumed that the countries that would heed this call would be the great maritime powers, the great uh, the countries that had sent expeditions around the world the United States or Great Britain or even some of the Scandinavian countries that had experience with polar climate and, and uh, the, you know, that had, had dispatched so many whalers to the north and south uh, regions. And yet the answer, the, the fact that the first country that answered that call was Belgium. And not only that, the man who claimed to uh, represent the country and, to, and, and who proposed to reach those southernmost regions was an untested 20 something year old naval lieutenant was just remarkable and and I think led a lot of people to underestimate the the expedition and also sowed a lot of doubt among people and I think that's one of the reasons that he was not able to at first put together the crew and scientific contingent that he would have that he would have preferred so yeah it was definitely surprising and especially given that Belgium did not have much of a maritime tradition at the time after splitting with the Netherlands in 1830, Belgium was left with a minimal coastline and had delegated much of the uh, maritime responsibilities to, to to the Netherlands. So it was it was a remarkably ambitious and uh, some might say hubristic and foolhardy undertaking of Alejandro Jalash to to take this on. You talk about. Degarlash, and that's how I have to pronounce him because that's how I do it. I think a lot of you know, there's there's some debate about whether it's a hard G or a soft G, and I used to say Degarlash, but the family themselves have specified that, and even even a lot of of uh, Belgians pronounce it Degarlash, but the family themselves informed me that it was a soft G. Great, I'm going to say they have the entire series saying it wrong, but uh, that's, that's okay. A, that's okay. Yeah, um, with Degarlash, he obviously has some issues. As a leader, you know, he becomes very indecisive. He doesn't like confrontation, things like that. When he gets into the ice, though, and like has a situation like where, you know, I've got iceberg up ahead. He seems like the guy that is perfectly calm to get at the wheel and do anything. But then when he has the bigger 
macro view of things he you know his paranoia of the uh of the press his inability to confront people in the crew he lacks leadership capabilities yeah he was a, a great navigator great sailor and he was happy only on the water he was born to to do this he was born to to be a seaman however from the very beginning he was hampered by the fact that he had presented this or sold this expedition as a national patriotic undertaking and he had gotten funding through a national subscription and so he felt he was he was answerable to the to the the people of Belgium and to the government of Belgium and he was very um i guess paranoid about the press presenting this as anything other than a Belgian expedition, for example. And the fact that he had to fill out the ranks of his expedition with so many foreign sailors and scientists to the point where it was only about half Belgian. He, uh, I think that was the right thing to do as a commander because he found the best men that he could. Yet for him, it, he, he, was, he felt like it, it gave an opening for the press to question the patriotic nature of of the expedition into um so from the beginning this gave the belgian crew that was that he was able to hire a sense of entitlement and it gave them the sense that they were somehow able to get away with more because they knew that he they couldn't they couldn't he couldn't kick them off the ship without balancing without without throwing off the balance of nationalities and on the other hand, he was not able to put them in shackles or impose other disciplinary measures that would have been available to, say, a military leader or a naval commander, because he was not a this was this was a civilian private expedition. So he was continually taken advantage of by his crew and especially by the more rambunctious uh, Belgian crew members. And the fact that he was not able to impose discipline early on completely undermined his authority. So I think he also was not naturally a very confrontational person. He was aloof. He was a dreamer. And this was just a very, very bad recipe for a commander. And uh, when it when it came to when they were finally locked in the ice and as a result of possibly his worst decision, which was to push a relentless southern course in the face of, of a growing pack. He was then forced to be a leader of men, and he, he was deprived of his strongest quality, which is his uh, ability to navigate. And he was then forced to, to confront a group of, of men who were resentful of his decision and who were, were going to be stuck there and suffer as a result of it. I want to ask about the bigger picture of the expedition. What's the goal of Belgica and what's the goal of polar exploration at this time? There's a quote that I used in the book from George Mallory. There's a very famous quote from George Mallory, which is why climb Mount Everest. He was asked before his final and uh, fatal attempt at Everest. And he answered because it's there. And that was a glib answer. And it was a bit of a tautological answer. It felt, feels almost like a Zen cone. And I don't think we can get much closer to that than, than that kind of riddle because it's tautological. And it's, it's also very true. But the quote that I use 
is the what he said later to the New York Times journalist that asked him that question, which is that very often uh, science is the pretext for exploration, but it's very rarely the reason. And in the case of the Belgica, that's uh, that's absolutely true because it was sold as a scientific expedition. That was the justification for it. And frequently as humans, we do use this uh, this as a pretext, I think, you know, for, for that, that we are only extending the field of human knowledge. We are only deepening our understanding of science. But that discounts the romantic nature of exploration. We go to the edge of the horizon because we have an instinct to do so. Not everybody. Not everybody is drawn to go to the, the dangerous limits of, of human knowledge. Everybody's fascinated with it, but it's also incredibly scary. So, but but there have always been, and this is why we've survived as a species, there's always been a certain number of people who are driven to the unknown, to the highest points, to the lowest points, to the furthest points, to the most dangerous points. And um, it, it's something deep within us that we can only explain through some kind of tautology or just, you know, it's why, why do we get thirsty? Why do we get hungry? It's just within us. There's obviously the glory involved too, which I, is more understandable, uh, more you, is more tangible. The sense that if we do accomplish something like this, we will earn the admiration of our peers. We will be able to write books about it and make money. But it's obviously that that wouldn't those stories wouldn't be so fascinating. They wouldn't make money if we didn't all have within us a fascination with the unknown. So um, yes, science is a key factor in this, but it's it's far from everything, especially because Adrien de Jalache was not himself a scientist. He just knew that his best chance of gaining the funding for this expedition was to sell it as a scientific expedition and to approach the, the various scientific and geographical organizations uh, in his country with a deeply uh, researched and very serious scientific proposal. But ultimately, he wanted to go there because it was there. We've talked a lot about Adrien de Garlache, but one of the things about the Belgica expedition that is in some ways unique to exploration is it's not all about the leader. And in the book, you really present a trifecta of, I would say, main characters from the ship side, and that would be de Garlache, Cook, and Amundsen. Was that very specific on how you wanted to present the expedition that way as this three-headed um, uh, kind of points of view, I guess, if, if that's the right way to say it? Yeah, absolutely. I see it as a as a kind of triangle, as these three men were all fascinated with the southernmost continent. They were all driven by a deep, a deep passion, but they were not made of the same stuff, and they did not have the same backgrounds. And I figured it was just a, a great way to understand the motivation of explorers to approach it from three different points of view. There was Amundsen, who was almost machine-like in his sense in his sense of mission, and uh, that he he trained himself to endure the, the the worst conditions and and was only ever happy when he was suffering. Uh, there was Cook who was a showman and who was in love with the the theatrical quality of this and was a very physically capable man. And then you had de Jalash, who was almost 
driven by an aristocratic sense of purpose to fulfill the destiny of a, of a great family. And I, I just thought those three played off each other so well. Um, th- there are things that link Cook and De Jalash, a, uh, a sense of poetry, a sense of, I guess, a, a sense of vulnerability. And then there are things that link Cook to Amundsen. I mean, they were their strong constitutions, their ability to to withstand the the, the worst that nature can throw at them, and uh, their their fascination with polar equipment and going further and faster. And uh, and then there was the the fascinating relationship between De Jarlash and Amundsen. Amundsen, who was a natural leader of men, but was on this case uh, the fir- the first mate to to Adrien de Jarlash. And De Jalash, who probably understood that he was not the alpha male in this relationship, and uh, the, the, they, they continually butted heads. And so just that that trifecta, as you say, was was for me the key to the to the book. It, it, I, I would not have written the book if there hadn't been such strong and fascinating character relationships. That's wonderful. I think you really brought that out in the book, and, and I think it's really powerful. I almost looked at Amundsen as a soldier, the person who is trained to do the job, doesn't flinch at things. Even if he probably hates it, he does it because that's the way he is. Degarlash, he's kind of like the rich aristocrat in an old British war movie who's got the job because of his connections, and he's got to rely on the, the soldier to uh, get things done. And then there's, of course, Cook, who is just incredibly charismatic. And I tell people, with regards to Cook, if you read his book that he wrote about this expedition, it is wildly entertaining. Um, yeah. I mean, most of these books from these eras are not good, but Cook was just, I mean, everything he did, his writing is very good. The prose is really nicely done. It's extremely vivid. I would I would say it's a little purple, but it's that doesn't make it not entertaining. It's extremely entertaining. And um you always have to take what he says with a grain of salt, but as we know, because of his future claims. But I think in this instance, everything he wrote turned out to be true. Uh, he embellished a little bit. The language was definitely overflowing, but he is a wonderful writer. And I have to say in French, De Jolash is also a terrific writer. His book is wonderful. Kind of reminds me of Robert Falcon Scott, who was a, a better writer than he was uh, a leader, uh, according to some. But uh, yeah, I, I I agree with you on on Cook and and um, through the first Antarctic night, his his account of this trip, which was the first to come out, and I think probably the best. I think the biggest regret I have with doing this uh, series was I could not read Degarlache's book. The only thing I can find a million copies in French. If I wanted to, I could have paid one hundred and fifty dollars for a used copy of of it in a translated in English, but. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that. But again, one of the great things was your book provided kind of access to some of those things. And the other thing, I, I'm going to kind of use that as a, a tee up another question. And that is, uh, you mentioned some of the source material on here, like uh, Degar Lashes. What was some of the other stuff that really has not been used up until now, until your book? The source that I was happiest to find and most privileged to find was the diary of Vinka, Carl Vinka, who was the Norwegian deckhand who was the first casualty of this expedition. I'd found it 
through the grapevine, basically. The Norwegian librarian that I'd been working with at the National Library of Norway got very invested in my project and spoke to all of her colleagues. And all of a sudden, I got an email from the Maritime Museum in Oslo and saying that there was a source that had never been consulted. And it had been the Vinka's diary had been typewritten in, I guess it must have been in the 50s or 60s. And it was laying there and, and had uh, had not been looked at. So that really opened everything up for me. And it, it was an, an old, old Norwegian, which was posed difficulties for Google's <laughs> translating um, capabilities. But it uh, it showed me, for me, which was what was invaluable, is many times these expeditions prioritize the, the perspective of the leaders and of the officers, because those are the records that survive because uh, for, for various reasons, maybe, the, you know, frequently the crew did not keep records or uh, uh, oftentimes the, they were illiterate. But in this case, uh, Vinka wrote a surprisingly deep and thoughtful and touching account of the first few months of the expedition and before his death. And he was a young, wide-eyed, curious fellow and I fell a little bit in love with him, I have to say. And so the the the, the fact that that uh, he also was was uh, one of the one of the casualties of the expedition added a level of poignancy um, that to the book. And I was able to capture this perspective thanks to the survival of this document. So I was I, w- I was extremely fortunate to to find that. There were a few others that had not really been consulted. Uh, Johan Koren's uh, diary included a lot of his drawings. He was a very skilled draftsman and ended up being a, a great explorer in his own right. And the cartoons of Rakovica, which had been seen, but I found them to offer a unique perspective into this expedition because of the sense of humor. Frequently, we focus on the harrowing qualities of these expeditions. We focus on the suffering and on the stoicism but we have to remember that these were human beings that were like any other human beings in any other situation are going to resort to gallows humor or going to try to bring levity to cope with the difficulty. And so the fact that these raunchy cartoons uh, undercut a lot of the stodgy seriousness that we that we often associate with with these adventure stories. And uh, I, I was very happy to use those as well. That actually goes really well into another question that uh, that I have, and that was about the sailors, not necessarily the officers. What is their perspective of doing this? You know, here they are; they're getting minimum pay and so forth. I'm sure they get okay pay, but they're going into places that people don't come back from. And what's the psychology behind these people? What's their motivations? Their diaries, their accounts do not really mention their motivations. So we're we have to. I guess speculate a little bit. A lot of them had shady pasts, and like many sailors uh, for many centuries, uh, sought to escape their troubles by uh, heading out to sea. This was certainly the case with several of the Belgian sailors who uh, were to find more troubles aboard the Belgica and uh, end up being kicked off the ship. I think that was the case with with a lot of the people who remained on board and who found a new purpose, even though they might have been motivated to to join the expedition 
to escape their their landborn troubles. I think they they definitely found a sense of purpose once they were there. And for others, it was just a job. It was a they, they were not paid much, but they were fed. And uh, you could also assume that that for many they were driven by the same sense of adventure as as the officers. I don't think um, I don't think just because somebody is 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 working as a sailor that they're not also motivated by that deep romantic sense of adventure. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed one hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. I saw an interview online where you're talking about the book, and you mentioned that the ice becomes a character in your story. And I want to say the darkness also becomes its own character, one of the other bad guys in the story, I guess. But talk about the ice as a character, because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I approached the ice. Uh, I, I thought very vividly of uh, the sh the the shark in Jaws. You know, it's a threat that's out there. Um, it's a threat that is largely unseen, and the ice is seen. But the threat from the ice is not always apparent because the ice takes so many forms, and uh, it looks serene when you look out. But but I definitely saw it as as the the villain in the story. But also, it you know you can only anthropomorphize it so much. It is the embodiment of nature. I mean, nature, it's, it's this ultimate, one of the, th one of the three great conflicts in literature is man versus nature. And, um, I saw this as, a, as one of the most pure distillations of that conflict. And when you go out on the ice and you hear the noises that it can make, you understand why I saw it almost as a living thing. It makes gurgling sounds. It makes uh, groaning sounds. It roars. It cracks, and it takes on different shapes. And when it when when uh, two big fields of ice come together, and the pressure is such that a giant ridge emerges, almost fast enough to be seen by the naked eye, and boulders of ice come rolling down, it it is absolutely understandable 
that the, the men would have would have seen this as a as a malevolent force as an almost a living force so uh for me that was definitely you know a, a, as i say I, I considered it like either the shark and jaws or like moby dick now you mentioned the sounds it makes now is this from your own experience because i know you did go to antarctica to do some research on the book is that from your own experience that when you talk about the noises yeah i mean the, you know i didn't i didn't get stuck in the pack ice i definitely want you know method writing as i say only goes so far but i did take a week-long trip to the antarctic it was during the summer but it was to the gerlas strait which is the 100 mile stretch of of the antarctic peninsula that bears de gerlas's name because he's the one who discovered it and you can hear in the distance and in my case uh pretty close up you can hear the roar of calving icebergs when when uh, an iceberg flows over the edge of the land and breaks off into the sea. You can hear the, the crack of the ice, which is something that feels like the very fabric of the air is coming apart. And then you hear the you know the splash in the water, and you you think you're alone, and you think it's this this majestic serene landscape, and all of a sudden you hear this uh, thundering noise on a clear day, and uh, it's definitely unsettling. And uh, I also spend a lot of time. With friends, every winter we go to Lake Sunapee in New Hampshire and walk across the frozen lake and spend uh, the the night on an island. And you can you can hear the cracks of the ice and you can hear the way it reverberates across all the water. Obviously, fresh water ice behaves differently from sea ice, but uh, that it rattles the nerves and it sounds almost like science fiction noises. And when I heard or read the descriptions of the men of the Belgica. Talking about sea ice, I thought back to my experience of of walking, being stranded in the middle of a giant frozen lake, and hearing these nerve rattling cracks, and uh, that would so I did bring some some personal experience to that. I've done several series on polar explorers as well as a couple uh, in the mountains. So when I read this in your book, I was just like, "That's exactly the same kinds of things." Just that groaning and moaning and like this almost human quality sometimes of the ice that is as it presses in on the ship and things or yeah and and the ship and the ship itself has those human qualities too in in uh resisting that assault and in in screaming out in pain what's also very interesting especially in the ice is in a lot of ways the slow motion effect of it because when a bird calves off it doesn't just like plop and done and when ice you know they form a hummock or whatever it takes hours and days, you know, where it's doing these. So it's just this slow motion, just noise. And people are always talking about that in virtually every story about this kind of a thing. Yeah, it's true. The stillness of it belies the danger of it. And it becomes this this perennial menace. And especially you could see, you know, there's this scene in the book where Dejolash is, is looking out the window of his cabin where he was, you know, convalescing for much of the trip or, or, or suffering. And he sees the advance of this pressure ridge and it's like a slow motion tidal wave that takes several days to get to him and he can't move and he's he's stuck there. It's Can you imagine the terror that you're living with that built a sense of suspense uh, that I tried to really uh, emphasize in the book? But I, I, I you know, I, I think I was reflecting their experience pretty accurately. A really important part of the book is when Degarlash decides to go into the ice and get frozen in. And he tries to portray it like, oh, we tried to get out, but it's pretty obvious that was his intention. Very honestly, I I find it horrible. Yeah. 
he's putting his crew in danger, which is not what a commander should do. And especially a crew that wasn't signed up for that. There were definitely people who were already having mental health issues. And here you are, I'm going to go like put you into the, to the darkness for the next five, six months and just talk about that decision. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're sailing, you know, that the, the first rule is safety and the safety of your men. And that is the, that is the rule that he violated, that Dejarlaj violated when he pursued that, that Southern course in the, the face of the solidifying sea ice. He pretended that it was to, at first, that it was in order to avoid the dangers present at the limit of the of the pack ice during a very strong storm that was sending chunks of ice against the ship. And he figured that he if he if he sailed south some ways into a lead where the the, the waves would be dissipated and uh, there, there wouldn't be such danger from the um, hurtling around of, of ice. That was probably the right move, but he didn't have to go 20, 25 miles into it in order to avoid that. Uh, I think he felt, as we discussed, he felt pressure from the, the, the press back home. And he was worried that the expedition did not have enough to show for it had, and, and that uh, had been so delayed that they could not uh, meet one of the main goals of the, of the expedition, which was to sail all the way to Victoria land on the other side of the continent and reach the Southern magnetic pole. There was no way they could do that before, before the sea ice uh, blocked their path. And so he figured that he would go for some kind of record because he knew well that that was the coin of the realm in, uh, in exploration that, that coming back with some kind of story to tell would be as valuable as coming back with some kind of scientific record, some kind of uh, first or some kind of to be the first men to winter in the Antarctic. And that was something to go home and crow about. And uh, you know what? It worked. <laughs> We're talking about him because he did that. But it was definitely a foolhardy, dangerous and questionable decision. Yeah, I call it the thing you want to be able to put on your business card. First person to do this, you know, that sort of a thing. Right. Everybody would, this is what electrified the public back home. You know, they might not be so jazzed about the, uh, the discovery of the first native insect in Antarctica. I mean, that's not what they, that's not what they wrote the articles uh, about. That's not what they subscribed for. That's not what uh, so many people sent, sent money in for. They sent money in because they wanted Belgium to, you know, maybe in their minds, they, they thought that uh, Belgium would plant their flag on the South Pole. The closest de Galash would get to that would would be to uh, get stuck in the ice and uh, and and be able to to brag about having survived the first winter. And um, you know he must have known that there was a good chance that several men would not survive. Yeah. Now de Galash and the crew do get home. Not all of them. There are a couple of them do pass away in the course of things. I know he was terrified, obviously, of the press and everything like that. But he literally had done almost nothing of what he had set out to do. He had added this whole spend the winter in Antarctica thing. But tell me about the reaction of the, the public and the press and so forth when he did get home. The press seems to have forgotten the mission that he set out to accomplish, which was to reach the South Magnetic Pole. And they were, uh, I guess, so 
so fascinated, so electrified by the story he came home with, this this uh, survival story, that he was a national hero. And uh, so his, in that sense, his gambit paid off. I uh, do take issue with the sense that he accomplished nothing what he set out to do because the scientific bounty that the men came back with was voluminous and took uh, decades to sort through and formed the basis of what we now uh, rely on for our understanding of the the Antarctic regions. But you but you're you're absolutely right that the m- most prominent aspect of his mission most prominent goal of his mission uh, was to reach the South Magnetic Pole, and he didn't even come close. And yet the, the Belgian press seems to have entirely forgotten that. When he came home, he, he came home to rapturous praise in the press and uh, to a, a series of acclamations and events and, and medal-granting ceremonies and you know all that stuff. What did people learn from this, from this expedition? And the most... Enduring lessons from this expedition were not so much about the what the scientists learned, uh, you know. Despite what I what I said about the the thoroughness of the of the work and um, the diligence of the scientists, I think the lessons were more about the psychology of exploration and the 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 um, the limits of human endurance and the importance of psychological screening. For one thing, to weed out who and who, uh, who is and who is not uh, set out for this kind of work, which is not something that Durgelash did, which it, and that's one of the reasons I think uh, for which many of the crew members suffered is that they did not know what they were getting into and they were not prepared for it. The most enduring lessons uh, have to do with Cook's innovations and interventions aboard the ship and in combating the effects of depression and of cold and isolation. I think his the attention that he paid to each of the crew members, his uh, meticulous and, and uh, um, methodical surveys of the men, the fact he made sure that their concerns were paid attention to, they felt heard, um, that was very important. And then uh, more concretely, his insistence that they eat a diet of raw meat and thereby ward off scurvy think was a reminder of the importance of a very of, of of a varied diet of a nutritionally varied diet and of the fact that you know explorers couldn't just rely on on uh, canned foods and and then there was also cook's invention so to speak of phototherapy which was his insistence that the men stand naked in front of a roaring fire uh, to uh, ward off the effects of darkness. He figured that if he couldn't bring the Belgica to the sun, he would in effect bring the sun to the Belgica. And that was way ahead of his time. And to this day, the, the theorists of, of a phototherapy credit Cook with the development of, uh, of, of a technique that is used routinely to ward off the effects of depression. And another one of the lessons from the Belgica, I would say the most tangible effect of Cook's observations is that now in space exploration and in in, in general long long term exploration, uh, there is a an understanding that the food needs to be varied not just in nutrients but in texture. The meal times should be a source of bonding, should be a source of good vibes, so to speak, and something for the men to look forward to. 
And if the food becomes tiresome, if the men start dreading it, then these these one sunny moments in the, the, the these few sunny moments in the day become sources of dread instead of anticipation, and that can sour an entire expedition. So um, I think Cook would put his finger on this, and, and uh, you know some some of the NASA consultants that I spoke with said that this was probably the most important of. Uh, the most important aspect of, of Cook's legacy is his insistence on a varied uh, diet. I love that last comment. One of the things studying like Shackleton, for instance, was his insistence on good food, a variety of foods and a good cook, um, a person who can take what you have and make good food that's going to make men satisfied. And so I love that you mentioned that because it's something that a lot of people just ignore those common everyday things. They think, well, I know what we need. And I will say one of the things I love about this series is you see in later stories, the things that they learned in it, that Cook learned, that Amundsen learned. Now, some of those literally they applied to themselves. But as I said, the food stuff with Shackleton, he totally understand it. He was excited when one of his men could play a banjo, you know, kind of thing, because he he knew how important it was. And he had served as an entertainment officer on a ship, Shackleton had. So he understood what that meant to these men. So uh, the food thing is great because these people learned. And I always am impressed by that because so many times explorers don't learn. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, they think, oh, yeah, those Inuit people are just savages and we sail past them. And we don't come back and sort of thing. And so I do love uh, the the concept of of the food, about how they learn. And obviously with Cook and Amundsen, they took so much that they experienced here and translated that into making their next journeys better and, and more yeah. successful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right that in exploration, things are continually have to be uh, learned and relearned. And the fact that they were even dealing with scurvy in the end of the 19th century, when it was thought to have been solved at the end of the 18th, is is proof of that. And uh, every expedition has to make its mistakes and and learn from them. But I, I think you know over the course of of uh, the heroic age, um, a lot of those lessons became ingrained. Um, but, and you're you're definitely right that that was probably one of the great legacies of the Belgica is the lessons that Amundsen in particular took from them and from his conversations with Cook and from Cook's deep respect for Inuit traditions and Inuit uh, folkways and uh, Inuit techniques for travel and diet. Uh, all of those things contributed to Amundsen's successful career and to his uh, many accomplishments. I know we've talked a bit about Degarlache, a little bit about Amundsen and Cook, but I want to ask you about Cook and not necessarily about the Belgica, because with the Belgica expedition, he's so critical to it. And you like the guy. I mean, you know, he's caring, he's compassionate, he's innovative, he learns, he's optimistic, and, and you just like the guy. Yet he ends up in a federal prison. What happened to him? What happened to this man who was so dynamic and so innovative that he ended up in jail well the reason that i'll just give you the the charges he was after uh, returning from the from the arctic claiming to have found to have reached the north pole in 1909 very quickly 
his accomplishment was thrown into doubt and his character was uh, disparaged by largely by his rival, Robert Peary. And um, he became a, a figure of ridicule and his uh, word was thrown into doubt in, in previous accomplishments, such as his ascent of Mount Mc- his summiting of Mount McKinley, uh, now known as Denali, was thrown into, uh, into doubt. And he was no longer able to pursue a career as an explorer. Nobody else wanted to finance his expeditions. He did find a second career as an oil man and then found himself making a lot of money by selling shares in a dubious consortium of uh, oil interests in Texas and was thrown in jail for the the charge was mail fraud. And the idea was that he overhyped uh, a lot of the the uh, assets that he uh, was, was selling stock in. And um, he was made an example of probably because of his, his history with, with uh, embellishing the truth and his history of, of lying to the public. But your question is, how did he get to that point? Yeah. Why did he have the need to embellish the truth? I mean, those stories were, were good stories to begin with. Yeah. And he had the opportunity to actually summit McKinley. Yeah. And why did he turn into this huckster type? I think that he didn't so much change as given to a tendency he always had. The, the, the qualities that make him such a magnetic character are his his vision, his sense of thinking outside the box, his uh, ability to to sell other people on his dreams. I think there's a fine line, in, especially in America, between optimism and delusion. And Cook embodied that more than anyone. You see that in P.T. Barnum. He entertained a lot of people, in many ways, the, the same kind of character. In fact, he shared an impresario with P.T. Barnum, a man named J.B. Pond. He shared a stage with Harry Houdini. He was a showman. Uh, and this was all before the Belgic expedition. But I think the qualities that made him such a magnetic character were his sense of possibility. And that's also what was behind some of his great interventions, some of his great insights and epiphanies was his great sense of imagination. And as his career took unexpected turns, and as he met challenges later on, those qualities curdled in a way and led him to distort the truth rather than try to think outside the box. They, they led him, he, he gave into the darker aspects of that, of, of his personality. The, the the flip side of that coin uh, that had previously given him such an expansive imagination now were leading him to to lie essentially. So I think I don't think it was I don't think it was a sea change. I think it was just an evolution of his character. Just a couple more questions here then. Regarding the expedition and your journey writing this book, what surprised you the most? You know, one thing that really surprised me is the, and this is something that came from my my experience in the Antarctic, was the, I guess, polychromatic nature of that continent. I, I, I thought of it as just a frozen wasteland, but it is such a beautiful, rich, phantasmagorical landscape, and I I was I was surprised by the stench of penguin guano you know i was surprised by 
the the vivid colors of lichen by the depth of the blueness of the ice and the the various shapes that icebergs can take and he's just i was absolutely transfixed by that by that ice scape and by that environment and also i was fascinated by and surprised by the extent to which that landscape had not changed at least on a macro level since cook had described it and photographed it in 1898 when I was cruising by the Gerlach Strait, I saw the very same features of the landscape that Cook had photographed. And I it almost felt like I've been here. And uh, of course, those photos were in black and white and the, the, what I was seeing was in color. But uh, I was definitely surprised by how little it had changed. But then what also surprised me and alarmed me is when we looked more closely at that landscape with the, the scientific personnel of the trip that I was on and uh, found the uh, dramatic ways in which this environment is actually changing. And we took samples of the water and found that the salinity was dramatically lower than it had been even 10 years ago. And uh, that the organisms that thrived in that, in that region had to seek saltier waters uh, further south where the ice melt was not as dramatic. And that that was leading had a lever effect on the rest of the ecosystem and that everything uh, from the, you know, the, the, the fish to the seals, to the penguins, to uh, all, all the, the life there in Antarctica that the men of the Belgica wrote so um, evocatively about, were all slowly migrating further south and seeking colder temperatures. That uh, was pretty shocking. So, you know, that's not, that's not something about the Belgica expedition itself, but it's something that I learned in the course of my research. And when you compare the uh, data from those very regions that the Belgica um, explored today to with the data that they collected then, you start to uh, understand the, the dramatic nature of climate change. We have been talking for a while here with um, Julian Sankin about his book on the Belgica expedition. And I want to wrap up with one final question. And that is, you have written, this was your first book uh, that you wrote. It's fantastic. I really just can't stress that enough. I've, I've said that in the podcast to people. It's amazing at how exciting and interesting a ship stuck in the ice can be. It doesn't get dull. And that's really kind of an amazing thing. So kudos there. My question then is, do you have any other plans for a future book? I know you're a writer. You currently write for um, The Hollywood Reporter. But do you have any other book plans that you're willing to talk about? And will it involve exploration or history or, or something like that? I do, and it will. I am currently working on a book about the most valuable shipwreck of all time and the efforts to find it and excavate it. So there is a historical component. And there is also a contemporary component, and both both stories are uh, equally fascinating to me. And so I, I, yeah, I'm not a sailor myself, but I love the ocean, and uh, I, it seems like I'm finding a groove here. Actually, something just popped in my head uh, regarding the Belgica book. Are there plans to expand on that? Because let's face it, this would be a great miniseries or something like that. Any chances that ever happens? Well, there is a script in the works. And uh, we'll see where that goes. It's uh, the kind of entertainment that people used to make in the glory age of Hollywood. Uh, and uh, hopefully there's still an appetite for this kind of thing. Excellent. Yes, I'm excited to see it on screen as well. All righty. Well, 
I just want to say thank you to author Julian Sankton, who is the author of Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night. And I can't stress enough that this was the best source I was able to get. And as I said during this interview, I could not have done this show without it. I, I never attempted to cover the Belgica because there wasn't a good English language look at, at the whole expedition. So this was fantastic. It is the definitive book on this. If you're interested in the book, you can look in the show notes and on the website, we put links to it. Otherwise, Julian, thank you very much for being with us. I'm very happy to have been here. Thank you so much for a great conversation. Great. Again, everyone, this has been the Explorers Podcast with Julian Sankton. And uh, I think this was a great way to wrap up our Belgica series uh, with the person who probably knows more about the expedition than anyone in the world. So there you go, our interview with author Julian Sankton. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Julian for offering up his time to talk to me about the Belgica expedition and the challenges he faced in writing the book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth. As a reminder, you can look on our website or in the show notes for links related to Julian and his book. So that is it. Thank you for listening. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other wonderful shows, including the history of everything and the mystery of everything. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.